The views expressed by guests on this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and not PCCA. This podcast is intended to be educational and informative. PCCA does not endorse or advocate any practice that is not consistent with federal and state laws or regulations. Check with your local board of pharmacy about any issues in your particular jurisdiction. Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, joined as always with the famous Sebastian Dennison. Uh, I don't know about famous, Mike. How are you? Uh, I'm sure in the world that we deal with, Seb, whoever listens to this podcast is obviously anxious to hear your voice. So uh, it has been a bit of a while. Last time we had a chance to sit down and record, we sat down with Daniel and Gus, no stranger to the podcast today, kind of following that that same routine, bringing back somebody who's been here before, our Vice President of Clinical Services, Mr. AJ Day. How are you doing, sir? I'm wonderful, guys. How are you all doing? It's it's so great when you're here, AJ, because in the beginning, it was always like regulatory. We always talked about what was going on with USP 795, 97, and 800. But I feel that whenever you come, it's it's a big topic because it normally relates to an API or a disease state and something that truly impacts the lives of independent community pharmacies. And and this situation, this episode will be no different. Um, because of my experience on the sales side, I see a lot about what's going on in the marketplace, things that we get high demand on, things that people are having a really hard time trying to find. And, and they often look at PCCA as being that, uh, that individual, the intermediary for bringing in a really difficult uh, chemical to source. And, and in this case, we're, we got some great news. Um, we're going to talk about quinacrine today, and I know it seems like more of an obscure API, something that you know doesn't have that that wide range of of therapeutic outcomes when we think about HRT or we think about pain management, et cetera. This seems to be quite of a narrow focus, but nevertheless, I would say even given my experience in the sales side, something that people have been looking for for years now, and it was almost became a forgotten item. So, you know, as a tagline, let's let's think about quinacrine what happened in the marketplace and kind of where are we at today? Cause now we got the source back. The item is available for, for sale. And it's obviously extremely exciting that we can put that API in, in the hands of compounders. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. There is a story behind this. Um, you know, many years ago, PCCA was carrying quinacrine. And as far as I'm aware, we may have actually been the only source for quinacrine in the United States and Canada. And when FDA began implementing the the rules and regulations around the Drug Quality Security Act and the Compounding Quality Act in Section 503A, um, quinacrine was one of those substances that PCCA nominated for the 503A bulk drug substance list to be eligible for use as an active ingredient in compounding, even though there's not an official USP monograph and there's not an FDA-approved drug product that contains quinacrine as the active ingredient. Now, there was a USP monograph in, in an older version of USP, and it was removed. So there's not a current USP monograph for quinacrine. So that, that's why it needed to go through that nomination process. And 
in uh, 2016, in March of 2016, the FDA Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee had it on their agenda to discuss. And I went to uh, to that meeting and I was doing the presentation on behalf of the nominators um, to, to defend why quinacrine needed to be available for compounding. And the real focus of the utilization of quinacrine was for patients with lupus. That's what it's used for in modern medicine. It's part of the standard training for medical school, for rheumatology in the treatment of lupus. It's part of the official protocols. And I included a lot of information about this in my presentation. And also, to my surprise, during that same meeting, um, the, the way that these meetings function, there's the FDA's presentation on a substance, their evaluation of the substance. There's the nominator's presentation on the substance. And then you also have something called the open public hearing session. And so people who are not part of the FDA's presentation or not part of the nominator's presentation can sign up to speak during that open public hearing session. And one of the people who spoke during the OPH of the quinacrine discussion was Dr. Victoria Wirth. And she later came up to me and you know she had a beautiful presentation to the agency, but she asked me, you know, she complimented my slides and asked where I got some of those pictures. And she wrote the chapter in the rheumatology textbook. I mean, she's the preeminent authority on this matter um, in the United States and, and possibly even beyond our borders. So um, it was really nice to, to form a connection with her at that time. Now at that PCAC meeting, there seemed to be a general understanding that quinacrine is necessary to support our patient needs for, for lupus. And there was, at the same time, some concern because quinacrine was originally developed as an anti-malarial, um, though it had been replaced by you know, other more modern uh, anti-malarial medications that have a better safety profile and maybe even more effective. So it's not really used for malaria. And then there was also a, an, another product that was removed from the U.S. market um, for reasons of safety concerns, right? So keep in mind that in compounding, even under Section 503A and 503B, if a product has been removed from the market for reasons of safety or effectiveness, you cannot compound with that, right? And so there was an intrauterine product for quinacrine that had been removed. So FDA and the advisory committee were really struggling with this idea of how do you make something available for the patients with lupus who need it, but not available for these other, other conditions um, where there may be some concerns over either safety or effectiveness, right? Because safety on the intrauterine side and effectiveness on the malarial side, um, those are the primary concerns. And I know I'm kind of boiling down things into a very um, basic level here, but for, for reasons of the podcast, those were the primary concerns. And from the perspective of the agency and, and the advisory committee at the time, they said, well, something's either on the list or it's not. We're not going to give it an indication. So we can't say you can use this as an active ingredient in compounding to treat this specific condition. And, you know, that, that, would, that would send a different message of, of, you know, some sort of endorsement and, and a green light than, than what the FDA is prepared to do for compounding. So the net result of that committee meeting was that the advisory committee agreed with the FDA to not put quinacrine on the bulk drug substances list when they go through the process of final rulemaking. Now, in the interim, it's been on category one of their interim policy. So the 
you know, compounders could continue compounding with quinacrin, though the, the, the writing was essentially on the wall that when the FDA would go through rulemaking, it would no longer be available because the FDA recommended against it and the advisory committee voted against it. Now, this was really concerning because, like I said, this is a standard of care. This is utilized in uh, all sorts of practice settings, inpatient and outpatient, maintenance therapy, and it's really a necessary medication for so many patients. So what are, what are these patients to do? What are we to do as healthcare professionals? So there was a, a lot of activity that then happened subsequent to that meeting, including um, some meetings with lupus advocacy organizations, rheumatology um, advocacy organizations, and the FDA. And we were told that, look, FDA understands the importance of quinacrine for patients with lupus and that they would find a way to make it available. And fast forward, what FDA ended up doing is putting quinacrine on both category one of the interim guidance and on category two. So category one means that it's been nominated and FDA is going through the final process of, of evaluation and rulemaking. And in the interim, they do not plan on uh, taking enforcement actions. So they refer to that as enforcement discretion while they're making their final list. Category two is it's been nominated, but FDA has significant concerns about safety, public safety of using these ingredients as an API. So even though they're, they've not gone through final rulemaking on that item, they're not going to exercise enforcement discretion. They have a concern about public safety. They do not want you compounding those items. So quinacrine being on both lists, how does that happen? Well, they put a route of administration um, caveat on its presence on both of those lists. So in category one, it was quinacrine, parentheses, not for intrauterine administration. And on category two, it's meaning you cannot compound this one. It's quinacrine, parentheses, for intrauterine administration. So they did not endorse or give a, a, some sort of a blessing to a particular indication or disease state. It's more about the route of administration. And you'll see that today. You, you look at the FDA's process in evaluating the bulk drug substances list under 503A, you'll see several instances where they're specifying a route of administration restriction. And so that's a process that, that they've kind of put together, and I think it makes a lot of sense in some of these cases. So that, that's great. Now we have quinacrine for not intrauterine administration that is on category one, and that, that kind of goes along with the patient need. Um, when we're talking about supporting our patients with lupus, we're not using it intrauterine, uh, a dosage form. So what's next um, is... In, in the story, the next piece of it is the manufacturer that PCCA utilized for quinacrine, um, they were shut down. Um, I don't know the details behind it, but the source of quinacrine went away. And now it was extremely frustrating because we'd done all of this work with the agency and in advocating, and we lost the source for it. So uh, they were the only FDA-registered manufacturer of quinacrine globally. So we were left in a position of, of not having a source for this really important medication that meets the requirements, the statutory requirements under 503A and 503B. <clears throat> now, the FDA continued going through their process of, of rulemaking, and they even proposed uh, and finalized a rule for, for quinacrine on the 503B side, saying that you can compound 
or, or in 503Bs, you know, manufacture compound uh, with quinacrine for oral use. They specified oral use as the route of administration. And and so what did what were we kind of stuck with in this interim of we didn't have the product, but people were still compounding with it. Like there was someone out there was had this product. This is what I kept getting told on the clinical services team. And we ran into some real problems with that. And fundamentally, it was a bigger deal because people were thinking they were getting help. And in fact, they were having problems. So did you want to speak to that, AJ? Yeah, you bring up a really good point. You know, there's there's a process, you know, and the process keeps going, right? The FDA is going through evaluations and decision-making, and we did a great job of advocating and showing why it's needed. So they are talking, or not talking, but they're publishing, um, you know, proposed rules and rules that talk about the use of quinacrine in both 503A and 503B, but there's this vacuum in the marketplace. We don't have access to that raw ingredient. Well, suddenly there was a source of quinacrine on the market. It, it wasn't coming from PCCA. We were not able to identify the manufacturer. We, we actually did quite a bit of digging, but quinacrine was being sold. Prescriptions were being filled, labeled as quinacrine. Um, FDA eventually stepped in and, and did an investigation because some of the patients were not getting better. And it was determined that that supplier, um, they were not actually selling quinacrine. It was another substance that was labeled as quinacrine, but it was not quinacrine. And um, there was a recall, um, you know, and unfortunately in, in these types of situations, it's of course the patients who end up suffering, which is the, the worst uh, factor in all of this, but um, really underscores the need for robust quality systems around any of your um, ingredient sourcing, particularly active ingredients. Um, but that also shows why we weren't able to find a source for quinacrine, right? You know, somebody's saying, yep, we've, we've got it. They're FDA registered. We can sell it. And they were selling it. And we're saying, where are they getting it from? Because we could not identify a valid source of it. And um, well, the, the, I guess that story unfolded the way it did. Lo and behold, not quinacrine, but sure, it's labeled as such. Could have been lactose. It could have been, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was determined sertraline. to be um, but you know, completely different uh, substance. And so, then if it, if inappropriately dosed, and this, this goes back to the quality discussion, if, an, if dosed inappropriately, you can have nasty side effects, you can have harm, but it's also affecting the reputation of the pharmacy not and not just the health of the patients. Because anyone involved in a recall, they understand what that relationship uh, building sort of failure occurs. Physicians are saying, you, you promised me quinacrine, you're not doing it correctly, you're, 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 you're doing a recall what about our patients? What about our shared patients? It's it, it's a bad scenario for everyone involved. So, but here we are. We've got the good. We got the good news, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it really is tremendous news. And I've continued to be in touch with Dr. Worth and, and other researchers and clinicians in the area who have really been um, eager to have a good, reliable, reputable source of quinacrine. Um, and like I mentioned, FDA actually went through rulemaking. And so in April of this year, April of 2023, FDA placed quinacrine hydrochloride on the positive list, you know, the, the, the bulk drug substances list for 503B for oral use only. So we've got all of that momentum that's finally resulting in access to this really important chemical um, active ingredient. So it can be compounded as oral dosage forms by all 503A and 503B um, pharmacies. 
And again, I know it's utilized in inpatient and outpatient settings as well. So that's that's really good news to have a, a reliable source on it. Um, so again, you know, until now, there's been the, a several years vacuum where nobody had access to the chemical, despite it having this um, this allowance from a regulatory perspective. And now all of those puzzle pieces are coming together. So while on on the 503A side, the restriction is not for intrauterine administration. So technically it does kind of open up some options for alternative routes of administration. I'm not really aware of specific needs, um, maybe for patients who are NPO where you need to go with the rectal route of administration, but uh, really the focus is on oral use just as specified in that rule for 503B. And and you have to think, like, this is an autoimmune disorder. There could be other confounding factors. We may have patients who have multiple autoimmune disorders. They may not be able to swallow. So we're talking suspensions, capsules, uh, all, all sorts of options there. For compounders, it, it, it's not necessarily a, just a capsule form. So very, very fun. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this is not a new chemical. It's been around for decades, over 80 years. So there's there's a lot of clinical literature about it, a lot of safety information um, so patient counseling and all of those types of details, there's ample information to, to support our patients in, in this quest. And of course, your rheumatologists and, and, and physicians are going to be very familiar with, um, with the risks and monitoring that's needed for patients that will be receiving this. And, um, you know, for several decades, the only way to get it has always been through compounding. So those, um, those fellows and and residents and everybody that's gone through that uh, rheumatology training or even dermatology training i mean it, it's all part of their their education they they understand about what to monitor for that it needs to go through a compounding pharmacy um and and so now again those those puzzle pieces are all coming together and i i think that this is a true opportunity for compounders again to demonstrate their value in the rheumatology space Speaking to the rheumatologist, yes, we can do quinacrine again. Yes, we have an FDA-registered safe supply. Um, by the way, we can also do these other compounding treatments for your rheumatology patients. It, it really does open up a conversation as well as opportunity, as well as uh, commitment to quality, which, which we've always stood for. So yeah. it's fantastic. It also really underscores the importance and the value of advocacy. I mean, none of this would have been possible without our presence with the FDA's process and getting out to DC and advocating for the pharmacies that we work with and their patients that they're taking care of and going, you know, not taking no for an answer, really standing up for, for what is needed to provide the best care possible and not saying, Oh, well, those patients are just going to have to figure something else out. You know, that's, that's not a reasonable solution, particularly in, in a situation like this. So, um, you know, the, the, the work that the PCCA public affairs team does on the advocacy front cannot be understated. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. And it's also one of these, again, an opportunity for our community pharmacists to be involved and help find support for the advocacy efforts. And obviously if you recognize a need, bring it to our attention. If there's, if there's an opportunity here, we're, we're all ears. Yeah. So nominations can continue to be, put together and submitted to the FDA for both the 503A bulk drug substances list as well as the 503B bulk drug substances list. FDA just recently um, issued a draft guidance for industry um, that's addressing the interim policy that they've gone through. And 
it's open for public comment at, as of the time of this recording, and it'll soon, you know, public comment period will close, and then we'll see what, uh, what FDA does with the comments that have been submitted before they uh, eventually move towards final guidance issuance. But, um, you know, all, all of these are, are steps in, um, in our profession that we need to be involved in, right? So I'd, I'd urge all of you to make sure that you're familiar with whatever these publications are proposing from the FDA, even in their draft form, so that we can we can have meaningful discussions about them and submit comments to the agency that they do take seriously. You know, the agency, um, they review all of the comments that we submit and, and they've got to consider it. It doesn't mean that you're going to get everything you ask for, right? They're going to have to balance a variety of different perspectives and interests to figure out what their perspective is on the best way to protect public health. But we have to be part of the process. We have to be involved with, um, with all of these activities. So I don't know if you want to answer this. Do we have any other molecules that we have nominated that we are currently watching that we're uh, that we have any interest in at this point? How do I how do I say this without uh, putting us in a position of promise? Are, right. Is there anything that we've nominated that we're still looking at and that we're we haven't got a, a final ruling on yet? Yeah. So FDA has not issued a final rule on the vast majority of the substances that have been evaluated for the 503A bulks list. And when I say evaluated, I mean that the agency has already gone through their own internal evaluation process. They have convened an advisory committee meeting. The advisory committee has listened to the arguments and has submitted a recommendation. They have voted on those, um, on those presentations, on those items. And now the FDA has to go through rulemaking. So there's a lot of substances, probably the two that are of the greatest interest in the compounding industry right now, um, particularly for those who are doing sterile compounding, are methylcobalamin and glutathione. So in both of those situations, um, the advisory committee recommended in favor of having those substances available for compounding under Section 503A. The FDA's initial recommendation was not to include those. So we have a situation where the advisory committee made a recommendation that was different from the FDA's own initial recommendation. We don't know where FDA is going to land in their final evaluation as they propose a rule. So at some point, they will issue a proposed rule. That'll be open for public comment. And then they will have to go through final rulemaking. And once they issue a final rule, that's when it becomes really, really official. So one more question for you before we let you go, because we know you're super busy. Um, I There's some discussion about updates to the compound list. Uh, and, and so we just want to discuss that briefly because this is important information that everyone should be aware of. Yeah. So in uh, around September of 2023, FDA published an update to both the 503A interim bulks list as well as the 503B interim bulks list. Again, interim, that's the one where they have it all on categories. The, um, the final policy, that's where they've gone through rulemaking. So on these interim lists, FDA added a, on the 503A side, they added a couple of items to category one, meaning that while the agency does their evaluation and goes through rulemaking, they intend to allow those substances to be compounded as long as the compounder is um, complying with all the other rules around 503A compounding. Um, they also added a number of items to Category 2. And a lot of those items that were added to Category 2, meaning they're not going to allow it to, um, to be compounded, they're not providing that enforcement discretion. Um, those are 
um, peptides that have been used for a few years by some compounders. And so there's there's been a lot of um, discussion about what does this mean and, and the FDA, are they recategorizing things? I, I would really urge you not to, to think of this as recategorizing because these items were not categorized prior. So they're not moving it from one category to a different one. Uh, an entity nominated these items for inclusion on the list to the FDA. FDA did their initial evaluation and said that from their determination, initial determination, they have a safety concern for public health with the use of those items in the fashion that they had been suggested to be used from the nominator. And so they're on category two. This is, again, not a, re a reclassification. The items were never compliant with 503A, right? They did not have a USP or NF monograph. They were not a component of an FDA-approved drug product, meaning an active ingredient in an FDA-approved product. And they had not been nominated and placed on either category one of the interim policy or onto FDA's final list. So those peptides that are now on category two as of September of 2023, those were never compliant with 503A to begin with. So this is not a recategorization. This is not moving something that people were, you know, if there was a pharmacy that was compounding with them and they said, they, they felt it was okay, and now they see it on category two, and you know they're feeling like their world is being rocked. Um, there's nothing new here because those items were never meeting the requirements that are set forth within section 503A. And, and for the record, PCCA has never carried those items for those same reasons. The, uh, in addition to not meeting the requirements of 503A or 503B, there's also no uh, manufacturer of those items that meets our quality standard. So that that's kind of the the overall picture in a nutshell of the the category update from September of 2023. And and the whole reason I brought it up is because we just got so many questions about these uh these lists and these updates and we wanted to make sure that we were bringing you the the most current and up to date information because this is your business. This is your practice. And we never want to see anyone get into regulatory issues or, or regulatory trouble, especially with, in light of the current environment. Uh, there's enforcement. And our goal is to ensure your practice continues in best, best interest of your patient, best interest of you. So, but we got you on a regulatory question regardless. Ha! All right. <laughs> I don't know if I have any more questions. Mike, do you? No. Have <clears throat> that was awesome, AJ. I think <clears throat> what's really cool, if people have not heard prior episodes on a similar topic, you may not be aware of the advocacy component and obviously the role of the agency and getting things on the nomination list, which is incredible, but the availability of, of a substance, an API, sometimes it's not necessarily a willingness thing. It's just an availability. And I think compounders who are new to this market need to understand that in a perfect world, yeah, we would be able to access drugs from FDA approved and inspected vendors at all times. And sometimes there's a lack of that in the marketplace. Uh, and I think there's a weariness as well of, you know, if it is really truly obscure and we're saying there's no FDA approved source at this time, chances are there's probably not. And, and I think there's a lot that needs to be said about that. And just in terms of awareness, um, you know, there are shortages in the marketplace. There are situations where we cannot find that product. And, and I think Quinnicum was a perfect example. It was that vacuum, that, that void in time for so many years that it almost became an afterthought. Like, what happened to that drug? Uh, and now bringing it back, obviously, is a really big deal for the conditions that you mentioned and obviously the dosage forms that compounders are now able to make 
for their patients. So thanks for your personal work on the back end, because I know you do have a big stake in that as well, and it's it's a big deal. Well, I appreciate that, Mike. Um, and, you know, I use that analogy of the puzzle pieces because there's there's so much that has to come together just right, right? So advocacy is great. You still need access to the manufactured product. And, you know, is there a manufacturer that has all of the regulatory standards met? Are there manufacturers that have that plus meeting PCCA's quality standard of having to been inspected and, and you know, all of the quality attributes that go along with it um, and, the, and the reliability of the source? So we're really thrilled with this. Um, it's a unique manufacturer that, that's from a European location. Um, we've, we've been working with them to, to get the product here for a long time, and we're really excited to be able to provide that um, quinacrine to all of your patients. So should you guys have any questions, um, feel free to reach out to us at PCCA at any time. We'd, we'd love to support you. And formulas will be available once we've got everything lined up. So as you have more questions, you can reach out to clinical services. So Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Definitely from a clinical end and from an API availability end, uh, definitely online and within our website. And if you need to speak to our client care team, 1-800-331-2498. So, you know, trying to get you covered from all angles. Um, it's great to make this type of announcement when a product regains its availability and is back in the marketplace. Thank you for walking through the the background story, AJ. I know it was elaborate uh, and probably well needed. So I appreciate you doing that. Thanks for inviting me to join you guys. Always a pleasure. Is, is he? He's he's up there. He's like one of our top guests. He's like oh, four, yeah. four like returning guests. Yeah, he can battle out with Aaron and I think we have their to battle him, of like eight or nine. We have to get him or, or the t shirt. Episode. I know we're gonna get him the jacket first. Yeah. Uh, or what comes first? Is it the I think it's the t shirt, then a jacket, then a hat. That's how it goes. Yeah. AJ, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. I didn't know y'all had a whole swag store. That's I don't, exciting. I, don't <laughs> I didn't know we did either. It's been a while, but- It's very uh, quiet, but yes, it's there. We have it. It's an, it's an internal thing. But thanks again to our audience out there for tuning into this episode. Hopefully you learned a lot about the API, you know, substance marketplace and really what goes on behind the scenes, especially from an advocacy point of view. If you would like to follow us along on social media, don't forget us on X, on LinkedIn, on Instagram and Facebook at PCCRX. And last but not least, definitely check out our website for more up and coming information and news relating to promotions and things relating to 2024. So, but definitely thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio. We'll talk to you soon.